0: Welcome to New Hope's Teaching Podcast. This is an excerpt from our Sunday morning service. Visit newhopepdx.org/teaching for notes, worship, and church announcements. Stay up to date with our teaching series and events by downloading our app. Just text New Hope PDX app to seven seven nine seven seven. Enjoy this week's lesson. Hello everyone, my name is Hannah, and I'm one of the pastors here at New Hope. When I was in college, a guy that I had a crush on gave me a theology book for my birthday. I was like, oh, this is very romantic. Thank you very much. It was actually a great book. It was The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. And A.W. Tozer was an American pastor, theologian, thought leader of his day. The book, The Knowledge of the Holy, was published in 1961. And then in 2006, it was actually named one of the, the top 50 most influential books for evangelical Christianity. So kind of a big deal. Although I have to admit, I never actually finished reading it. I didn't get too far into it. But There's this one simple statement that A.W. Tozer wrote that has really lingered with me for, for years, really since that time. And this is it. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And to be honest with you, after years of pondering this, I find that that is a true statement. I couldn't believe that more. Our imagination of God is one of the most formative things about us. And I'm not just talking about our right theology about God. I'm not just talking about the list of God's character traits and attributes that you might be able to kind of list off when you're, when you're asked that question to get the right answer. What I'm talking about are the images and impressions of God that reveal themselves when life gets real, when worry or anxiety or fear kicks in, when we find ourselves in a season of suffering or confusion or shame, when the pressures of life kind of push in against us, what's revealed are these subconscious images of God that are deeply formational in our daily life. How does God see us? Is God looking upon us with disdain or judgment? Is God a critical father ready to jump on us as soon as we make a mistake or like, oh, better get things cleaned up before dad gets home? Is God distant or disappointed? Are God's arms crossed, eyebrows furrowed? Is God even there? How we imagine God in these moments will dictate how we respond. It will dictate how we relate to God. It will dictate how we relate to ourselves and to others. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So if you haven't already guessed, I'm proposing that that's a true statement, that what comes into our mind when we think about God is is one of the most important things about us. But if that's true, I think it'd be a pretty good idea for us to look at the scriptures and see what God actually says about who God is. So I want you to turn with me in your Bibles or flip on your Bibles to Exodus 34. We're jumping into a story where God has has gathered the Israelites and has, has picked out a leader, Moses, and has asked Moses, hey, come to this mountain. I'm going to give you some instructions on how I want these people to live. Meet me there. So Moses goes up to the mountain. He brings some writing utensils with him. And then before God says anything about the rules or regulations that God has for this people group, God tells Moses Who God is. Exodus 34, verses 4 through 7. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones, and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning, as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud, and stood there with him, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord! the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. This is the word of the Lord. All right, thanks, Christine. We are in the middle of a teaching series called What Does That Mean? where we're exploring these significant words in Scripture and unpacking them a bit. So far, we've talked about goodness, about grace, about justice, about the word perfect. And today, we're going to look at that first word that God uses to describe God's self. Do you remember what it was? Compassionate. Today, we're doing a deep dive on the word compassion. Compassion. So the original language of the Old Testament, which is kind of the first half of the Bible, the original language of that part is Hebrew. And then the original language of the second half of the Bible, the New Testament, is Greek. And since we started in Exodus, we'll work with the first, uh, the Hebrew word of the word compassion first. That word is rakham. I want you to say it with me in your house, or maybe if you're like watching this out and about, you don't have to say it. But if you're at home, rakham. say it with me. It helps if you, you know, get some like phlegm in there, good like German. Okay, you get the idea. Rakham. So I loved how how Mike encouraged your participation last week. And what I'd love for you guys to do is in the chat, just write down real quick, what comes to your mind when you think about the word compassion? Maybe there's a story or a person or, or a character trait. What comes to your mind when you think about the word compassion? Compassion. So jump in on the chat or maybe chat with some of the people that you're you're watching this with. Now the root word of rakam is a similar word, rakhem. And the word rakhem in the Hebrew scriptures is the same word for womb. So there's this deep connection between compassion and womb. That compassion isn't just this kind of soft, I feel sorry for you emotion, but compassion, it's, it comes from the womb. God's compassion is this womb-deep activating emotion. It's almost, hopefully this doesn't get too real for some of the moms listening, it's almost like contractions. It's this activating emotion that that out of that compassion must be this restorative healing action. And time and time again in the scriptures, we see that womb-deep compassion lead to restorative and healing action from God. An example of that, there's this beautiful tribute to God's compassion in the book of Nehemiah. So it's it's a time of of significant repentance, of return of the Israelite people to God. And the priests of the Israelites do this very thorough speech, kind of recounting God's compassion throughout the years. Our ancestors became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and... "'Compassionate, Rahem, slow to anger and abounding in love. "'Therefore you did not desert them, "'even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf "'and said, this is your God who, you brought, up, who brought you up out of Egypt, "'or when they committed awful blasphemies. "'Because of your great compassion, "'you did not abandon them in the wilderness.'" By day, the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. God's compassion in the scriptures always leads to restorative healing action. Now, in the New Testament, when Jesus comes on the scene, who really is the embodiment, the fulfillment of God's compassion, the primary Greek word used to describe compassion is splagnitzomai. all right? Can you say that one, splagnitzomai? That one's a little trickier. Splagnitsomai, it's also kind of a bodily word. It means to feel in the inward parts, in your intestines, your internal organs, or even like more literally your bowels. You know that feeling like when you get like a stomach cramp or an intestine cramp and like you just got to go. There's no other option here. That's the kind of word that's being used to describe Jesus in the scriptures. Okay, so since we already are going there, this is a little too much of a TMI, a too much information moment. I've had the opportunity to go to Kenya several times. And the first time that I went, I was 18. And the last day that we were that we were there. We were about to get on the bus to take a little jumper plane over to Nairobi. And I got one of those stomach cramps, and I was like, okay, there's only one option here. And I run over to the the pit toilet, (laughs) and my little horrified 18-year-old self just cries out to the trip leader, Andy, what do I do? It's coming out both ends. (laughs) I told you it was too much information. But... I want you to get how graphic this word really is when it talks about Jesus and the scriptures being moved with compassion, which it does over a dozen times in the gospels. That's the kind of visceral image that he's moved with compassion. He has to do something. Matthew nine, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And then, directly after that, Jesus gathers his disciples and commissions them and sends them out to the people to bring healing and restoration, to proclaim the good news of God's kingdom. And then, a few chapters later, in Matthew 14, um, Jesus is trying to get some space, something, uh, he was going through something where one of his friends had, had you just learned that his friend had passed away. And so he's trying to get some space to go have some solitude and then takes a boat. And then as he gets to the other side, he's met with another crowd. And it says, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Jesus' compassion, it wasn't just a nice emotion. It wasn't just Jesus feeling sorry for people's circumstances. It was this visceral emotion that always led to restorative healing action. So compassion in the scriptures, it's rakam. It's this womb, deep motherly aff- affection that flows from God. And compassion in the scriptures is splagnitzomai. It's this intestine-level emotion that lives in God's guts it's not this sentimental emotion it's not pity the compassion of god always leads to healing and restorative action in the lives of god's people so a few minutes ago do you remember when i quoted a w tozer from the knowledge of the holy that the most important thing about us is what we think about god so the longer that I'm a follower of Jesus, and the longer I have this, this privilege to pastor people in their life with God, the more clear it's become that there's this, this really devastating disconnect, both in, in those I interact with and, and often in myself, between what we theologically, theologically believe about God and the way that our life like what our lives reveal about what we believe about God. How we live that reveals. It happens on a broad scale. It's probably not news to you that Christians are often perceived as as critical or judgmental, even though the primary adjective used to describe God in the scriptures is compassionate. So there's a gap there. And then, then there's a gap on a very personal scale too, that our attitudes and our actions, our worries and our choices reveal that that deep down in some secret places, in some not-so-secret places, there are parts of us that have yet to be convinced of a God that has overflowing, womb-deep, intestine-level compassion for us that leads to healing and restorative action in our lives. So how do we even begin to address that gap? And what I want to propose to you today is that we begin to address that gap by tending to our image of God, by tending to our image of God. Okay, we're going to do a little imagination exercise together. Are you ready for it? Ready or not? Here we come. Today is actually going to be full of imagination. We're going to do a little activity now, and then we're going to end this message with an imagination activity as well. So we're in for a treat today. First of all, I want you to imagine God thinking about you. You can close your eyes if that's helpful. Imagine God thinking about you. What are God's thoughts toward you? Imagine God talking to you. What's what's God's tone of voice as God talks to you? Now I want you to imagine God looking at you. What does God's face look like toward you? Now I want you to imagine God sitting or standing next to you. What is God's body language toward you? Now, maybe for some, but for most of us, this isn't something we normally reflect on. It's not a usual practice for us. But here's the thing. I promise you that whether you're aware of it or not, your image of God, your imagination of God's thoughts towards you, God's tone of voice, God's facial expression, God's body language, all of that forms our image of God, that that image is fundamentally shaping the way that you interact with your life each and every day. We are neurologically wired to care about this since the time that we are born. We've learned to attune ourselves and orient ourselves to the people around us based on their body language, their, their tone of voice, their facial expressions. Since the day that we were born, our primary care- caregivers when we were young mirroring their face to us, and now with our friends, our family members, our spouses, even honestly just the people at the grocery store, the people that you're driving next to in the car, we are trained, we are wired to attune and orient ourselves based on the facial expressions, our perceived image of those around us. So imagine your experience if I were to, to be in the grocery store and see you and you saw me and I was like this. I imagine that might shape your interaction with me or perhaps you just wouldn't interact with me at all. But perhaps now you saw me in the grocery store and I was like, oh, my eyes lit up, my arms opened up and waved and I like moved towards you with an embrace. That would probably shape your interaction with me, Yeah. We are fundamentally wired to respond to others based on their image with us. Our whole body can feel one thing or another based on the way we perceive someone interacting with us. So if that's true in our human-to-human interactions, imagine how much more true that is with God. More often than not, our image of God is shaped by culture, our family of origin, or by our our stories, our wounds, more than it's shaped by the scriptures or by the spirit. It's so important that we tend to our images of God, that we unearth the images that are there so that we can evaluate them and make sure that they're true. Knowing, Knowing God's face toward us is so important that in the Old Testament, God instructed the Israelite priests to regularly bless the Israelite people, with this blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And then in the New Testament, when the Apostle Paul is trying to guide the earlier followers of Jesus in this new way of life, he writes this in the book of Colossians. He instructs them to live according to the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Therefore, Paul says, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion. Did you catch that line? We are renewed as our image of God is renewed. We are renewed. We're able to live into this new self in Christ as our image of God is renewed. As followers of Jesus, we are called and invited to, to be the image of God, the body of Christ on earth. I don't think it's a great idea that God had to give us responsibility of God's PR, but that's, that's the way it is. But as I mentioned earlier, we don't always do a great job with that, at least on a, on a large scale. Christians tend to be perceived as critical and judgmental, and therefore reflect a critical and judgmental God to the world. Here's the thing that we might hear that and be like, oh gosh, I, got it. I better be more compassionate because God's compassionate, so I better. That's just a shame, kind of fear-based motivation. That's not gonna get us very far. Instead, I don't think the solution is that followers of Jesus just try and be more compassionate. I think that the solution is that followers of Jesus learn to know and experience in ever deepening ways just how compassionate our God actually is. Compassion begets compassion. And we are renewed as our image of God is renewed. We need to tend to our images of God. Have you ever wondered why Jesus primarily told stories when he's interacting with others, when he's teaching? He tells stories and parables. It's because stories can kind of break through our black and white thinking, our literal interpretation, and they get under the surface. They they capture our hearts and our imagination in ways that just kind of facts and figures do. They give us new imagery for orienting ourselves in the world. So I want to give us an opportunity to let Jesus shape our imagination a little bit, particularly as it relates to our images of God. I can tell you all this stuff, but but Jesus tells us who God is too, and I want to give us an opportunity to kind of dwell in that. There's this a historical practice in the church called Lectio Divina, which sounds kind of fancy and maybe a little scary, but it's just Latin for divine reading. So it's a way of reading the scriptures that isn't just for like understanding or mastery or to study or to to work through, you know, read through the Bible in a year or something like that. That's all great. But if that's all we do with the scriptures, it's kind of like only working out one side of your body like that. Yeah, that side's going to get super fit and strong, but it's going to create kind of some awkward alignment issues. And so Lectio Divina is a practice that helps us kind of bring balance and work out the other side as well. In Lectio, you take a, a small portion of scripture And you read it slowly, multiple times, three or even four times. And you pause to imagine the scene, to take in the story, to wonder, to notice, to pray and ask questions, to wrestle with God. It's not about mastering the text or or understanding. It's about encounter. So here's what we're going to do. And to be honest, this might be a little awkward or uncomfortable. For, for some of us if this is our first time doing a practice like this, but that's okay. We're in it together, and we are going to practice Lectio Divina for the last five minutes or so of the of the message. I'm going to read through one of Jesus's stories. It's, it may be a, a passage that you're familiar with. It's the story of the, of the prodigal son in Luke 15, and I'm going to read through that three times, and each time I read through it, I will ask a few questions for you. So as you're, as you're listening, as you're taking in the story, I want you to be reflecting on these questions. There'll be different questions for each, each read-through. And then I'll give you a few seconds in between each reading just to kind of ponder and to be. We'll have some music playing so it won't get super awkward, hopefully, for you. But I just want you to experience this practice of imagining, of tending to our image of God right here, right now, in the message. Here's here's my biggest request of you though, okay? The only way you can do this wrong is by worrying that you're doing it wrong, all right? So try as best as you can to kind of shelf that worry. There's not a right or wrong way to do this. It's all about just being present to the experience and being present to God in the story, okay? All right, so as I read this story the first time, I want you to use your imagination to to recreate the scene. So what do you see? What do you hear? What do you smell even? What are the characters wearing? And again, you can close your eyes for this as well. So this is from Luke 15. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick! As I read this story a second time, I want you to notice what word or phrase captures your attention, makes you wonder, grabs your heart. And then maybe think about are there questions that you have for God that this story is prompting? So what word or phrase captures your heart? What questions do you have for God? I'll read through it again and then there will be another time to to pause. Jesus continued. so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating but no one gave him anything when he came to his senses he said how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare and here i am starving to death i will set out As I read through the story a final time, I want you to notice what feelings are arising in you. I'd love for you to ask God, what do you want to show me through this story? What are you offering me? What do you want to show me through this story? What are you offering me? Jesus continued, there is a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. I'm gonna give you 30 more seconds now to to sit with this, to reflect, to talk with God about this. How is this story? How is Jesus' description shaping or reshaping your image of God? Maybe think back to some of the questions that we we talked through earlier of, what are God's thoughts towards you, God's face towards you, God's tone, God's body posture? Think through that imagery after having done this experience. You have about 30 seconds. We are renewed as our image of God is renewed. Are there places in you that feel cut off from God's compassion or perhaps just resistant to God's compassion? Are there places where you're operating more like a hired hand than you are a beloved child who is welcomed, embraced, who belongs? Are there places in you that are are more gripped by criticism and judgment than they are by the compassion of God? What might it look like for you to radically receive God's compassionate action in your life? What might it look like to, to let that compassion so transform us that we might actually become an image of it for the sake of the world?